This is an ABC podcast. Hi, this is David Rutledge. Welcome to The Philosopher's Zone and the fourth and final part in our series about time. Over the past three weeks, we've looked at the ways in which time can get all twisted out of the nice linear regularity that we usually assume is its natural state. We've explored the philosophy of time through the lens of fiction, and we've considered the question of why our perception of time is so chronically unreliable. Well, this week, something completely different as we take a look into the world of forensic science and how insects and the action of insects on dead bodies can raise all sorts of unexpected philosophical questions. It's just a really interesting discussion, but I am obliged to mention that it involves descriptions of death scenes and bodily decomposition that some listeners might prefer to avoid. So at this point, you have the option of switching off, or you may now be deciding to put down whatever else you're doing and listen all the more closely. Here's Sam Barron. You might not realise it, but time is one of the most powerful tools we have for solving crime. Knowing the precise time of death can often make or break a homicide case. And understanding how evidence collects and degrades over time is essential to determining when a murder was committed. But how exactly do we measure time in criminal investigations? Clocks, sundials, stopwatches, and even the position of the stars in the night sky are all familiar ways to measure the passage of time. But we can also set our sights a bit lower and look downwards at the insects that live among us. What we'll see, if we're careful, are billions of tiny clocks. In this episode, we'll take a look at the incredible world of forensic entomology. For the forensic entomologist, insects are the touchstone for criminal investigation. As we'll see, forensic entomology not only helps us to conceive of time differently, in biological terms, but it also brings philosophical concerns about evidence, scientific method and the law into sharp focus. To help us navigate the world of flies, beetles and bugs, I'm joined by Paola Magni, who is a senior lecturer in forensic science at Murdoch University. Paola is an expert in the use of insects to solve crime. She's an extraordinary scientist and she boasts the unique distinction of being a consultant for the Italian version of the popular TV show CSI. Paola, thank you so much for joining me. Can you start us off by telling us a bit about what forensic entomology is? Sure, Sam. So forensic entomology is the use of insects in criminal investigation. So basically the idea is that when a crime happens, and typically when there is a murder or where, where there is a victim that can be either a human or a carcass of an animal, uh, naturally what happens is that insects arrive and start the decomposition process. So understanding why the insects and when the insects arrive give us lots of information that we can use to backtrack what happened before the crime. So the idea is to use the insects to provide us with a biological clock of death. So you mentioned that insects have a kind of biological clock and that this is an important part of what's going on in forensic entomology. And so as a philosopher of time, obviously I'm quite interested in the way that time might uh, play a role in forensic entomology. So can you explain a little bit about how time features in the work that you do? Well, in general, in criminal investigation, time is important, is actually pivotal for everything because understanding the right time we can have a reconstruction of the event 
in a clear way, in a, in a complete way and uh, in a correct way. So we can investigate the case and provide the correct answer so that this real suspect, the good suspect is in jail and we avoid a miscarriage of justice. Using the insects when there is a victim is very important because the insects typically are not on our body. But if the body is dead, they will feel immediately the presence of the um, molecular of the decomposition. So they will fly from far away and land on our body and lay the eggs. So from that point, we have a biological clock that starts and continues until a body is found and an entomologist or a police investigator collect the maggots or whatever other insects we have. So when we're thinking about measuring time using insects, what kind of difficulties do you encounter when you're trying to get a sort of precise measurement of the way the, the, the sort of time between death and when the body is found? We were dealing with a biological thing, so we cannot be extremely precise. And biological thing changes environment by environment and because of the environment. So the main factor that can affect my work and my pre- precision, and this is something that I had to state in my report to the uh, prosecution or to the lawyers in general when they asked me to work on a case, is that there are some limitations. And this limitation can be based on physical um, matters, chemical matters or ecological matters. When I say physical matters, it's, for example, if the body is buried uh, underground or the body is uh, underwater, um, well, there is a physical limitation for the flies to arrive and land on the body and lay the eggs. Sometimes it's a, it's a physical limit that avoid, that in, impede the presence of the insects, but it's very rare. Sometimes just delay the presence of the insects, the arrival of the insects. For example, here in Australia a few years ago, here in Perth, they, um, my, my colleagues uh, made an experiment using a body of a swine, so basically a pig, um, covered or not covered by leaves and, and branches. You know, the idea of, you know, <laughs> how, uh, hide uh, somebody that I murdered. And uh, the, 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 the body that was not covered compared to the body that was covered, uh, well, there was a, a, a day of delay. Um, a similar experiment was done using uh, the, um, the uh, car, and this avoid the presence of certain insects that cannot get into the small uh, in part of the car so they can reach the body. So the physical limitation can avoid the presence of the insects uh, or delay the presence of the insects or just uh, affect what kind of biocenosis, so what is the group of the insects that can arrive on the body. Then we have chemical problems. <laughs> so for example, if you don't want to kill someone using a gun or using a knife, you can kill someone using a poison or somebody can die simply because of an overdose. So we have a presence of chemical substances within the body. Uh, or if I'm very smart and I kill someone and I want to use an insect spray on the top, well, I have a, problem, a chemical problem on the top of the, uh, of the body. Obviously, chemical substances can affect the life of the insects. They can arrive with a delay again, 
or they arrive and when they eat the body, when they consume the body, um, this uh, consumption is uh, affect them. Like when you eat something that is bad, your body is not going to be that good. It's going to be the same with the insects. Now, there are many works done with uh, uh, toxicological substances, with drugs and medical uh, stuff, uh, poisons, um, some, uh, uh, some metals. And uh, in some cases, the flies grow uh, faster and bigger. Sometimes they grow slower, sometimes they die. For example, with a um, car antifreeze, that is one of my experiments, we found that um, many people die because of drinking, uh, because they want or because they somebody put the car antifreeze in the drink. Um, some, many people die around the world. And um, they, the flies, they, they lay eggs on the body, but uh, these eggs, if the quantity of the antifreeze is too much, they, don't even, they are not even able to, uh, to grow. They, they basically die because it's, so, it's such a strong poison. With nicotine, uh, they, they grow very, very small and sometimes they die, but they survive typically. Uh, with methamphetamine, they become very big. So sometimes we have to consider that the insect that we find big is not because it's old, but because it's under the use of substances. So basically it's an insect with doping. <laughs> so we have to consider all of this uh, information when we provide a report to the, to the police. So it seems like there's a lot of different things that in some sense could go wrong, a lot of things that you don't know, but uh, also you're getting this really interesting way of tracking time uh, using insects. So what sort of factors can you use to improve the uh, way that you measure time and what sort of things can you do to control for the sorts of problems that you've identified? Well, there are a couple of things that you can do. One is to improve the number and the type of experiments that we can have because baseline data are the one we work on for, for the new cases that we have. Now, every new case is a unique case. So we can't control the event. We can't control the bad guys killing someone in a very strange environment, in a very strange way, using a strange poison. But more experiment we have and more variables we have in our experiment, more we can provide information. So first of all, please do more experiment in, uh, in forensic entomology and publish them because we have many students doing uh, experiments, but then they are not published. So the scientific community cannot consider that or they even don't know that this uh, have happened. The other thing is um, using new technologies in this experiment or in the observation of what we have. Why I say that is because uh, typical biologists, uh, you look into the microscope and you decide that the insect is that species because it has this number of legs, this number of uh, setae, this number of hair, this number of uh, things and colors and blah, blah, blah. So it's me uh, subjectively saying that that is the species or that I say that opening the pupae, I find the insect that has the eyes already... Uh, that size or the legs that size, so is this old or this young? And again, it's subjective. If I can use new technologies that are able to provide us with numbers, so an algorithm or uh, an empirical um, information, well, it's no more me, it's the machine or is something that everyone will give the same number because it's not something is personal uh, observation, but it's the observation of something that is empirical. 
So for example, in terms of this uh, story of the pupae and inside of the pupae, what's going on, uh, we recently um, used uh, hyperspectral imaging. That is a technique that is basically a camera that gives you more information than a normal camera. And we can take the picture from the outside of the pupae. So outside of the cocoon, we don't see inside. It's the camera that sees inside and gives us uh, numbers that are the numbers of the reflectance provided by the pupae inside. So instead of having the characters, the eyes, the legs, the wings and things, we have numbers. And these are, uh, give us information that, well, it's not about me, it's numbers, it's the machine, it's the camera. And if I had the camera, you had the same camera, somebody else had the same camera, we will have all the same results. And these have more weight in court because it's something that is not subjective. It's not my expert witness opinion, but it's the expert witness data, proper data. There's a, there's a whole lot there that's really interesting from a sort of philosophy of science perspective. Uh, one of them is this idea that you have this baseline data, which is informing the kind of uh, information that you draw out from, you know, insects when you're looking at a body. So is there, uh, so in sort of broader science uh, circles, there's been a real issue about replication and, 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 and repeating experiments. Do you have a similar kind of issue with respect to replication here when you, you say do more experiments, but is it also the case that you want people to do more of the same experiments so you can sort of shore up that baseline data? How does that all work? So yeah, you have to do more experiment than in a proper way. Uh, and the experiment require a number of repetitions and more repetition you have, well, better statistical analysis you can, uh, you, can, you can make. Now, I recently did a job with a, with a student and we had to use 116 pigs. So you can imagine the amount of work and the time that you need to do all of these type of things. Sometimes you can do repetitions. Another work that I had to do was to have more information for a case that I was investigating that was a man found in a well, so in a pit in the water. And I cannot put too many pigs in too many pe um, wells because we don't have the same well. <laughs> so sometimes it's really impossible to reproduce the same environment. Imagine a cave. It's only one cave that is with that characteristics. You can't make the same thing again and again. But it's very important to do as much as you can in order to have a proper uh, experiment with a number of repetitions that are statistically robust. Uh, because if not, well, um, the scientific community will not accept uh, the uh, publication. And if the publication is not accepted, it's not part of the scientific community knowledge. And nowadays, we have something that is called uh, the Dobert Law, that is um, a standard, that is an American standard that says that uh, no uh, information that you provide to the court should be accepted if are not published prior to uh, what you say in court, because that means this is just your, your say, not what the scientific community has been already accepted. Said so that, there are several papers that have been already accepted back in the days in which this is not happening. Like for example, um, I think there is a work on, uh, um, on cocaine, cocaine and maggots, so I work in entomotoxicology, so the use of insects to identify the drugs throughout the insects. So I analyze the insects instead of the, um, uh, instead of the body to get the drugs information in which there is one maggot. 
because there was the only Megan that was found in the nose of this guy. And <laughs> this is published, it's a very famous work. So we had to balance what is possible, what is already published, and what we want to do in the future. I mean, that one maggot must have been having a hell of a time, though, if you think about it. Lots of cocaine in the nose. It was very, apparently it was very big because the cocaine made them big. But there was only one maggot. And I had to say, reading the paper 20 years later in doing and lots of entomotoxicologists like, ah, oh, this is not good. <laughs> I can't use that in court and they're going to crucify me with that. On RN, you're listening to The Philosopher's Zone and Sam Barron in conversation with forensic entomologist Paola Magni from Murdoch University in Perth. They're talking about how insects in crime scenes can be used as clocks. And this is the final episode in our four-part series on time. More episodes available via The Philosopher's Zone website or the ABC Listen app. One thing that I'm curious about, uh, you said the when you're thinking about a lot of these cases, they're sort of one-off, right? You know, a particular cave, a particular environment, maybe even, you know, particular interactions between environments and, and toxicology. So if you're going into a court of law and you're supposed to rely on published studies, but the published studies are all sort of one-off and the case that you're describing is not exactly the same as any published study because it wouldn't be because they're all kind of individual. How do you bridge the gap between what's been done in the past and the kind of evidence or testimony that you have to give in a court at that point? Well, there are two things. Sometimes the court cases take so long that you have the time to publish the experiment that you do to, let's say, solve the case throughout <laughs> the court case. And this was happening in my homeland Italy back in the days, because the case can take like 20 years to get uh, sorted in the, in the court of law. So you can publish lots of paper in, in, uh, in the meanwhile. Um, otherwise, uh, you, can, you have to rely on the fact that your information is not the only information. So I like to say that insects are the key to solve a crime, but it's not true. I mean, the insects and forensic entomology, as well as DNA, ballistic and toxicology, blah, 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 are pieces of a puzzle. So yes, I cannot provide all the information, but together with your information, the information of the other colleague and the information of another expert and the investigation done on the ground by the law enforcement, we can close the case. So bridging the gap is getting the connection between the different people working together. So it's collaboration, communication, and working together, teamwork that close the case. I mean, this, this, this idea that you might publish things while a case is in operation is... It's kind of interesting. I mean, you might worry that it's a kind of situation where the tail's wagging the dog a little bit. Do you ever get cases where uh, the science itself is being driven by the case and that there might then be questions that are asked about the science that are kind of coming from the fact that it's responsive to what's happening in the court rather than just happening as a kind of independent scientific investigation? Well, I can give you a couple of examples, but uh, obviously as a, as a scientist, you always try to be as independent as possible, as objective as possible. And you try to work with people that keep you, you know, <laughs> uh, on, uh, on, on the track in this sense that you don't, uh, and you don't get too much involved in the case 
in order to get them biased in terms of the experiment. So one example I can give you is from America. Uh, it's a case in which uh, two girls uh, were um, found dead in a pond, two different ponds, two different places, but the, let's say modus operandi was very, very similar. Two different people were considered suspect and perpetrator of these crimes and were put in prison. Now, the work was done in terms of um, forensic odontology and uh, these, uh, so dentistry, because these girls were found with lots of bite marks on their body. And uh, the dentist that was working on this case said that the person who did um, these, uh, um, these bite marks was that person, and this person was considered the suspect and put in prison. So what happens is that years later, um, a forensic entomologist and ostacologist, so a person that can study crustaceans, um, does an experiment in the same ponds in which these girls were found, and he sees that in these ponds there are crayfish. These crayfish leave marks um, they are very similar to bite marks. So then he understands that the dentist guy <laughs> didn't realize that these bite marks were not bite marks of a person, but bite marks of, they were even bite because they don't have the mouth to do so, uh, of crustaceans. So these two guys were, um, were, the case of these two guys was reopened by the court thanks to the also Innocence Project. And after 10 years and basically that sentence for these guys, they were released. So the experiment was done down the track and was used for, um, uh, for, the, for the case. It was actually published a few years later, actually just three or four years ago, uh, this, this case was published. And um, so this was done on purpose to clarify what happened, but then was such an important thing that it's important to publish that because it can happen any other time in another environment. I want to just shift gear a little bit and think about an issue that's close to a lot of philosophers' hearts, which is the distinction between sort of genuine causation and mere accident. So philosophers have spent a lot of time trying to understand what that distinction amounts to and how to give a sort of precise account of it. So, you know, you see correlations all over the place between various things, but not all correlations are indicative of causation, only some are. But then there's this deep question about, well, what's the difference between a kind of causal relationship and a mere accident or a mere correlation? So in your work, how does this kind of distinction between causation and accident play out? What sort of things can you do to manage that kind of difference? It's really a silver line here because sometimes a murder accident can be the key anyway because you don't expect that, but that if you can read the accident, you can provide the information. So in a situation, in a typical situation, the causal effect is that the person dies or the animal dies, the insect arrives, that kind of insect. So the flies and the beetles of certain species arrive, they decompose, I can pick them up and I can look into the microscope, I can get the information from the uh, weather station and I can backtrack using the table of growth. This is the genuine situation, okay? Now, in the picture, I can get some insects that are not typically the insects of the decomposition. Now, are they there because they are opportunistic? The food is there, it's free, doesn't, doesn't run away, so I'm going to go. <laughs> or are just adventive? Or something happened and then I had the insect there? Now, 
can happen that it's just there. I had a case in which a person died in his apartment uh, and he had an heart attack in front of his um, uh, uh, table that was full of food because he was having dinner. And lots of insects uh, on the body were flies, typical flies, but also some insects that were uh, were there because of the food. So they moved from the food to the person. So it was just a mere accident. There were all of these insects together. But I had another case in which the animal dies and we have insects uh, all over the places outside, in the eyes, in the ears, uh, in the mouth, typically insect of the decomposition. But as a mere accident, inside of the stomach, I had a firefly that was taken by the, the bear, it was a bear in this case, while it was having the last meal. And the last meal was connected to a poison bait. And the fireflies can only live in certain environment. So that allowed us to say, okay, hold on. Maybe the bait is somewhere where the fireflies can live. So we went to this place and then we found the baits and then we closed the case throughout. So the mere accident is what, or the causal, uh, the genuine causal, is what in my world I say, when you are on the scene, you have to understand what is right and what is wrong what is part of the scene and what is coming from outside that can give you information. This comes a lot with um, experience and knowledge of the environment and uh, sometimes simply luck. There's so much more that I want to ask, but I just want to finish by getting your thoughts on another um, important philosophical concept, uh, this time in the philosophy of law. This is the notion of relevance for evidence. So evidence has to be relevant to a case in order to be considered probative, which just means that uh, it's it's something that can actually make a difference. And what I want to know is whether there have been any difficulties in getting the kind of evidence that you consider to be relevant in entomology recognised as relevant by a court of law. Yeah, so we have a problem sometimes that people think that uh, the insects that are on the body are important only if they are big. Uh, so when they go at the scene and they see crawling insects, they only pick big insects because they're the one that they will be old. So you're big, you're old, so you will be give us the right information in terms of backtracking because you are the oldest, so I can go back in time. Well, this is not true because there are so many species that we have some species that are big because they get big, like a big dog and a chihuahua. There are all species that are insect chihuahuas. So I don't pick the little one and I lose the information. And this is extremely important. So one of the things that we uh, always teach to the law enforcement is that don't use a forceps because the forceps force you to get only certain specific um, samples and, uh, of the insects that you like because they're easy to be picked, because they're dead, because they're big, because they don't, uh, they don't crawl too fast, they don't uh, run away, they don't fly away. Instead, if you use a spoon, a very basic plastic spoon, you will be taking random sampling um, made with a big insects, small insects. It's easy if they crawl around and you have to have a representative number of insects in your evidence jar. Because if not, you have only biased information based on what you see. Um, again, this comes with a, a randomization or with experience. So it's very important to, um, to consider that 
you don't need to know what is relevant right now. You just need to sample things. And then I'll find out later in the, uh, in the lab what these numbers and these um, representative species give us. Paula Magni. She's Senior Lecturer in Forensic Science at Murdoch University in Perth. We'll put a link to her webpage on the Philosopher's Zone webpage. And Paula Magni was speaking there with Sam Barron, who's an Associate Professor in Philosophy at Australian Catholic University in Melbourne. And as I mentioned earlier, this has been the final program in a four-part series on time. You can stream or download the whole thing via the ABC Listen app or any other podcast delivery service. And I'm David Rutledge. Thanks so much for your company this week and I hope you can join us again right here in the Philosopher's Zone next time. Bye for now. Bye.